0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. We're going to spend one more Sunday in Ephesians 4. Then next week, we're going to look at Philippians 2. We're going to have two uh, Christmas messages. Philippians 2 really connects closely to what we've been studying uh, in Ephesians. So... Ephesians chapter 4 we're going to work through verses 3 through 6. I'll begin in verse 1, however. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager consider the text that's before us, what we see is the repetition of the word one. The context of really the first 16 verses of chapter four is all about unity. I want you to think for a moment about what characterizes some of the greatest times of your life. Some of your greatest memories. What characterizes uh, those times? I'd like to submit to you that our greatest times are almost always connected to unity and fellowship of some sort. Where there's rich unity, And where there's rich fellowship, the human heart experiences the most amount of joy. As I think about my own life, and I think about great times, I mean, I think of Christmas time when all my cousins would uh, come to town. And we would get to share that fellowship for three or four days. And and my grandma lived in the, both my grandmas lived in uh, my hometown. So my cousins from out of town would come and they would stay at our house. And some of them would stay at my grandma's house. And I remember the time sitting around uh, in my grandma's living room, just packed full. So many people in such a small, Space and presents stacked almost three quarters of the way up the tree. And the way our family did it is we opened them one by one. We had to watch everyone open their gifts. And we would eat grandma's uh, fruit slush she would make. So, why are those such sweet memories? I would argue because there's sweet fellowship. I think of family camp, all the friends throughout the years, all the special times of fellowship, whether it's sitting in the rocking chairs, uh, talking, getting to know, building relationships with one another. I think of hunting with my dad or brother in the fall. Uh, Almost every weekend, we'd go pheasant or duck and goose hunting. It was mainly about the snacks more than... (laughs) actually getting game, but it was fellowship. It was listening to the Gophers game on the radio on on a Saturday afternoon. But it wasn't the Gophers game. It wasn't hunting. It was the fellowship that was sweet about it. I think about playing high school sports and, and even college football. It's the It's the unity of so many men doing something together. Doing it with one another. I remember, uh, it was either last year or the year before, uh, riding in the combine with Lawrence Secker, and he was towards the end of harvest, and he was telling me how the few days previous, the whole family was out there involved in the harvest. Everyone was home. Everyone was out there. And he says, Sam, there's nothing better in the whole world than when all my kids, everyone's pitching it, everyone's doing it together. See, it wasn't just farming. It's, it's being together that makes it sweet Even difficult circumstances, if there's unity, can be the sweetest times of your life. You talk to a soldier, or you talk to soldiers that fought side by side, shoulder to shoulder, in some of the worst conditions ever, and yet some of their greatest times of unity and brotherhood, doing it for one another, is during those difficult times. I even think about going through the church split that many of us, Went through. By far the most difficult time of my life, but some of the richest, deepest, uh, sweetest times of all we have is Christ and each other. But as we think about this, it can flip flop on us. What are the worst times of our life? What are the most painful times of our life? It's times when there's disunity. It's times when there isn't close fellowship with one another, when there's conflict, when there's fighting that can make that sick feeling in your stomach, that can bring about some of your most difficult memories you've ever had one of the texts that just gives me chills thinking of unity and then being left out that 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 scares me in the sense of what could be worse is is in luke chapter 13 beginning in verse 24 where jesus gives this statement. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he'll answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourselves cast out and people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God and behold some are and behold some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last it's this picture of this banquet table where the Lord is there and the prophets are there and people from every nation. And some will be weeping and they'll be gnashing their teeth. Why? Because they're not there. The worst part part about hell is you're left in isolation with yourself and the wrath of God of God. In fact, in Mary's song, when she became pregnant, as the Holy Spirit come over her, prophesying of Christ, where the humble will be lifted up and the proud will be made low. In Luke one fifty one, it says, He scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. You want to know what it's like to be isolated? You want to know what it's like to be alienated? It's to be left with your thoughts. You. See, hell isn't the party. All those outside of Christ that love to party, that love fellowship, that's all a gift to God. All that fellowship they have, even in all their partying, all those relationships... That's gone in hell. Or Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You see how scary our own fleshly thoughts are? You see how scary the deceiver Is and what he says when it seems like a good idea to isolate? The one who isolates breaks out against all sound judgment. It's earthly, it's not godly. That's not what you were made for. Your own life testifies to this. Someone says, Well, I'm an introvert. I just, no, you've been deceived. Some might like to be type A, the life of the party. Others might be more reserved. But the person that moves to the middle of Montana to get away from people is a hurt soul. And has chosen the way that will only bring about more heartache. Our text is about unity and about how Christ brings this about in our lives. We were made for unity from unity. The charge of this message is this. Walk with one another in a manner that reflects the unity of God. That reflects the unity of God. We're going to see the Trinity on display in our text you're going to see the word one, one, seven times. This text is all about unity, and that unity is all connected to the one Spirit and the one Lord and the one Father. That's what we're going to see. So as we look at our text in Ephesians 4, in verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility, gentleness, are in gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's what we've already traversed. So far in those verses, if you were going to ask, what are, the, what are our motivations What are the two motivations to walk in unity in our new creation? Now that we're born again, now that Jew and Gentile has been reconciled together. In in verse 1 of Ephesians 4, what does Paul say? He says, I am a prisoner for the Lord. The first motivation is to glorify God. Even his imprisonment was for the Lord. That's a motivation that he uses to get you to also walk in a manner worthy. You ought to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, worthy of the Lord. And then in verse 3, our our text before us today, we get to see the second motivation. Eager to maintain the unity of God. Of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word eager is in the emphatic. It's at the beginning of the Greek sentence. That's where the highlight is eager. How should I walk now that I'm a believer? You should walk eager. It's a present participle, which means this should be continual. We should continually be eager. Our motivation should be eager for unity. That's what it should be. You say, what should motivate my life that the Lord would be glorified and that you would be eager to be unified with both Him and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Eager to maintain unity in the spirit. Isn't that word maintain interesting? Think of what a maintenance man does. You know, an HVAC uh, um, contractor installs something that isn't there. There's not an HVAC system. They come in and they put it in. But a maintenance man might throw the um, filter in, maintain it, make sure it's working properly. And this new man in Christ is unified. And we're called to maintain the unity that is there because of the Spirit of God. So think about this. Jesus has reconciled man to God in his death, taking their sins, bearing their sins, paying the price for their sins. He's given them the righteousness they need so that they can be reconciled to God We saw that in chapter 2. And then we saw that not only can they be reconciled to God, but Jew and Gentile, arch enemies, can be reconciled to one another. So that's Jesus' work that he was doing. And the Spirit has birthed out the new man. The Spirit of God is the one that enlivens the people of God. What empowers the people of God? It's the same Spirit that has been given to every believer to maintain the unity of the Spirit, which means a Christian can fight against that which is there. Christians, if they don't walk with the Spirit can fight against the unity that is there because we are his workmanship. He did it. And when he works, it works. You really are one in the body of Christ with one another. And we're called to maintain the unity which is given by pure grace to us. This new humanity is called to maintain that which is God has done by pure grace. But this unity was not a random idea. You know, I used to read a text like this and say, "Oh yeah, unity's good," as though God's thinking, "What should I have this new people do?" Well, what's some nice things? Well, it's nice when people are unified and and have fellowship with one another. Let's ask them to do that. But that's not what we see in this text. Unity is not some random idea God had that he thought might be nice, but it is in fact the shared unity that God has within himself, within the Godhead, the Trinity. We are brought into share in the loving fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we are also called to share in the loving fellowship of one another. So this isn't a side thing that's nice to do. It's the thing. Now, we might struggle to, what does it mean that you get to share in the fellowship of the Trinity? Well, let's think about the Trinity for a minute. God is one being who exists in three persons. All right, kids, on your kid questions, I just gave you an answer there. God is one being who exists in three persons. What's the difference between a being and a person? The being describes what you are, we are human beings. A person describes. Who you are. So I am one being and one person, and God is unique. He is one being, sharing all, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share all the divine attributes together, but God is one being and three persons. That's not like us, but that's what He is like. Listen to the London Baptist Confession. I think this is helpful. This divine and infinite being consists of three real persons. The Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance. Sometimes you'll hear nature or the same essence. These three have the same substance, power, eternity, They're all eternal. None of them had a beginning. Each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided up. So God is one, being. The essence of God is never divided. Jesus is fully all of God. The Holy Spirit is fully all of God. The Father is fully. They're not a third, a third, and a third. They all share, for example, the same mind. They, they share the same will as one another. And then he says this. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither is he begotten nor proceeding. You got that? Let me read that again. The Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten or preceding. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, listen on. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. So what makes the Father unique from the Son is the Father wasn't derived from anyone or anything, but the Son is begotten of the Father. Eternally. It doesn't mean he had a beginning. Christ is eternal, but the Son is begotten. You know, the the Son is the exact imprint of the Father, of, of who God is. Christ exudes out of the Father. Just as a word exudes out of the Father's mouth, Christ is. Eternally begotten. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So you see the distinction? God, the Father, is not derived. He doesn't, he's not begotten and he doesn't proceed out of. The Son is begotten. And the Holy Spirit proceeds out of both the Father and and the Son. You say, well, that's confusing. Well, we're talking about the eternal God. We come to our limits in, in even distinguishing, well, it's the difference between begotten and preceding auto. But here's what you need to see. For all eternity, God the Father is face to face with His Son, and love precedes out of the Father to the Son through the Spirit. The Spirit brings the love of God to the Son. And the Son loves the Father back and the Spirit brings that love to the Father. And for all eternity, there's been this perfect love community in the Godhead. In the one and true God, there's three persons loving each each other. And in Christ, you're invited into this fellowship, into this unity, which ought to blow our minds, but only because we're finite that we struggled to even understand. If we understood, we'd stand up and we'd probably look a little charismatic if we realized the greatness of these truths. That's, that's our God. He's he's about to say, your unity is bound up in this Godhead because God is unified. You realize Allah cannot be God or cannot be love like the Bible says, like the the text in uh, 1 John 4 that Scott read, God is love. That's not true for Allah. Why? Who's he going to love for all eternity? Only the Christian God, only the one true God is love. So, so in light of that, just listen to John 17 here, the high priestly prayer. Obviously, Christ has, ha, understands this more than us. It, I just hope you get a glimpse of this prayer, okay? The end of his prayer before he goes to the cross, we get to hear what Jesus is praying. In verse 20 of John 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, not not just the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I. That they may all be one. Is unity a side thing when Jesus Christ, before he goes to the cross, what's he praying? He's not merely just praying, oh, that they get to heaven that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. You see what we're invited into here? I in them. How is Jesus in us? I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, become, there's a growth process, sanctification, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That the world may know that you, Father, love them even as you love me. That's love that we can't comprehend. And then he says, Father, by the way, this verse, as a believer dies and passes on, someone who struggled with sickness, terminal illness, someone who you've prayed for for so long to live and they passed on. This verse reminds us that someone else was praying. Also, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. I want them to be with me. I want fellowship a billion times better than Christmas. I want them with me. We pray, Father, keep them down here. We want them longer. Lord, if it's your will, heal them, heal them. But when a believer goes, Jesus' prayer gets answered. Father, I want them to be with me where I am. I want them to see the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. He wants them to see this unity. And then he says, Oh righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me I've made known to them your name and I'll continue to make it known to them that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. How is the love of the Father in us? How is the love of Christ in us? Well, it's in what Scott read in 1 John 4, 7. Uh, or beginning in, in verse 7. Where John says this, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. There's only one fountain of love, and it's in the Trinity. You know that, right? You can't conjure up love. You can't. You can either have his love in you. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and your own flesh in love. The world can't do it either. That's why worldly love is, I'll love you if you're nice to me. If you're not nice to me, then I'm done with you. The world loves the lovable, all right? It says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. It's at the cross we see God's love most clearly. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. You see, we don't love God so that our sins are wiped away. It's that he loved us when we were still sinful and became propitiation for our sins. And then he says, um, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. Get this, God is spirit. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Well, I can't see him. But God is in us when we love. Now, get this by this we know we abide in him and he in us. How? Because he has given us his spirit. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit takes the love of the Father and brings it right to us, the present reality to us. It takes the love of Christ. Christ will never leave us or forsake us. You say, well, where is He? Where is He? His love is present, living inside you in the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit proceeds out of the Father and out of the Son to us as believers. So someone says, I know God, but I don't love my brothers. That doesn't make any sense at all. Because when that love is inside us, and when that love is the one that made us into a new creation, then that love will overflow out of us. Okay, so this unity is what God is doing in the new man. It's not merely a side working or a byproduct of it. We are his workmanship. That's what we're created for. We're to be eager to maintain that which the spirit has done. So look at verse four. It says, there is one body and one spirit. There is one body because there is one Spirit. Who enlivens the body of Christ? The Spirit of God. What distinguishes who's a part of the body of Christ? Whomever the Holy Spirit dwells in. There is one body because the new man is created in Christ Jesus through the power of the one Spirit. See, if there's all sorts of different Holy Spirits, then there might be all sorts of different churches. Obviously, we're talking about the church invisible, not visible. But there's only one invisible church, our universal church. It's because there's only one Holy Spirit that enlivens that church. So here we start to see the ones. There's one body in one spirit. All right? There's the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul talks like this a lot. Ephesians one twenty two. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The body is the church. He's already taught us that in Ephesians. And 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're made to drink of one spirit. See, we all were enlivened by the same spirit. We all have that love living in us. And so... We need to remember to maintain the unity of the one spirit in the body. And secondly, we need to remember that you have one hope, one faith, and one baptism, and that's in the Lord. The Lord is Christ. You have one hope, one faith, and one baptism. Look at what he says. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So our one hope speaks of the promises that are going to be fulfilled. Some have been. Some are going to be. The idea is this. So so you have Jew and Gentile. They seem a lot different. But by the same spirit, they're born again. They're both connected into the Trinity. And their lot in life in the future is the same. They have the same hope, the same destiny, a part of the same family. So we are called the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, that's Jesus. And then we see one faith. I think this is referring to Christ, the gospel of Christ. There is one faith. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Man is sin, man must die. None of us can dig ourselves out of our own hole. We needed a man to carry our sins to the cross, but that man has to have the same worth to the one who was offended by our sin. And that's God himself. So this man has to be. Have the same worth of God. He's got to be a God man. There's only one way. I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the father. Except through me. A Jew doesn't get there one way. And a Gentile another way. There's one Lord. Lord. There's one way to enter into the fellowship of the Trinity, and it's Jesus Christ. And then it says, one baptism. I think this is talking about water baptism. I think he's writing to the church. What would they be thinking of? What baptism would they know? Someone might say, well, I think he's talking about uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is he would probably say uh, that you were, the one baptism was the baptism in the Spirit. But here it's connected to one Lord. And the idea is that both Jew and Gentile, as they, make, as they enter the church visibly in their confession of faith to God, they're both baptized into the name of Christ. You see, there's not a baptism to this God over here and this God over here, but they all get baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, only through Christ. Does baptism speak of us being baptized into Christ spiritually? The fact that we're immersed in Him well, sure it does. That's, that, that's what the symbol points to. But the idea here is that both Jew and Gentile have the same Christian uh, baptism. Um, someone might ask the question, if Christ is all about unity, for example, the prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6, that's so famous to us. For to us a child is born. To us the son is given. And the government shall be upon his sh- shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And someone says, yeah, but I've read the rest of the New Testament. And not all the texts that talk about Jesus is talking about peace. In fact, in Matthew 10.34, Jesus says something like this. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Well, this doesn't sound like the Prince of Peace. For I've come to set man Against his father, and daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. what? The Prince of Peace came to divide families? That's what he came to do. Previous to this, you know, he says, anyone who is ashamed of my words, I'll be ashamed of him, he'll be rejected. So as families disagree on Christ, there's a division. I don't think it means that the Christians try to just drive wedges by no means. But to be faithful to Christ certainly means those who don't know Christ or love Christ will be offended by the life. I think Philippians 1, 27 helps us understand the unity and diversity of Christ that that Christ brings. Philippians 127 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ah, that sounds like Ephesians, right? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, For the faith of the gospel, that's all unity. And then he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So Paul wants a type of unity that inherently brings along with it opponents. What did Christ say? If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they rejected me, they'll reject you. So as Paul calls for unity, he wants a real unity in the body of Christ. And he just reminds them that Christ himself will make you at odds with the world. Not because you don't love them or want to preach the gospel to them. It's because there is really rebellion against God bound up in man's fallen nature. And so as we think of unity coming in Christ... He's speaking of unity of the believers. It's already there. They're to maintain it. They're unified in Christ. You know, it's interesting reading through this, having gone through a church split. (laughs) It's like, no, with every believer, we are unified. And we weren't maybe working so well to maintain the unity that's there in Christ And that unity comes, by the way, not by believing less things about the Scripture, but the more all of us look into Christ's words and believe what Christ says, we're brought together. See? Superficial unity in the world is, let's just be really shallow, and then we can all put our arms around each other. No, unity comes in the one faith, as as we believe what Christ says. So finally, remember that you have one God and Father of all. Look at verse 6. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Does this mean that God is the father of unbelievers if he's the father of all? I don't think so. In fact, Jesus told the Pharisees that their father was the devil, The idea here is the Father created everything. Every unbeliever, where's he getting his energy to even have life? Where's he getting his breath? Where's, who's, who is, who has created this and who is over all this? It is God the Father. Do you realize that until Jesus came as the Son of God, We can only know to some degree what the fatherhood of God is like, but once His Son comes, once His Son comes and always refers to God as His Father, all of a sudden, this blossoming love of the Trinity starts to shine in the person uh, of Christ. I want to end with this. Wednesday night, we're going through James. And we were in James 3, 13 through 18. And I want you to turn there. In, In James 1, at the beginning of this letter, he says that God gives wisdom from above generously. Just ask for it. And he's talking about wisdom here. And he's talking to people that have a counterfeit type of wisdom. And he compares it with the type of wisdom that's real. Here's what he says. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So anyone who claims to have wisdom from God, but it comes in a proud manner. What did Jesus say about the false teachers? He says, you'll know them by their fruits by their character. There's a reason why all except one of the qualifications for to be an elder is about character. You're going to know false teachers not merely because they say something wrong, but because their lives are wrong. The love of Christ is not evident. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy, that's selfish, and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Some people must have been like this. They're boasting of great wisdom of God, but in their heart, there's this warring, there's this competition, there's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. He says, This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Do you realize that? Are you and I ever demonic? Now, demons cannot indwell a believer, but we can be influenced by the demonic whenever we're jealous or have selfish ambition towards one another. That's not wisdom that comes down from above. And here's what I want you to think of. Where does that wisdom lead? Isolation. The only thing you'll be face to face with for all eternity outside of Christ is yourself isolated with your own thoughts. The only one that will be present will be gone. But the thing that will be present to you will be his wrath. That's what hell is. That's where that leads. So children even. Why is it important to count others more significant than ourselves? We need to know where it leads. we got to know where it comes from. we got to remember, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. And then here's what he says. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, that's the opposite of unity, in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, Then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, and sincere. See, there's a way to wield the word of God and not be sincere. There's a motivation that doesn't have an eagerness for unity at its root. But here's the good news. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there's those who have the love of Christ inside them. They're maintaining with eager effort the unity of the Spirit, and you look behind them, and what do you see? You see a trail of righteousness, fruit, not disorder, not fighting, not conflict with one another, but they're peacemakers.